official podcast of Church at the Well in Burlington, Vermont. For more information about Church at the Well, including gathering time and location, events, and how you can financially support the podcast, please visit us online at wellchurchvt.com. I'm wearing a hoodie. I'm not trying to be a swag pastor. I'm just a little chilly this morning. I don't know if this room seems a little bit chillier than normal. Yeah, a little little chillier than normal. So um, I just want to stay warm, you know, make sure that everything is still functioning throughout the message this morning. So I'm not trying to be super cool and preach from a hoodie, just so y'all know that. Just a little chilly. So we're continuing our, our uh our series in the Sermon on the Mount. This is our fifth week. We're spending 14 weeks total looking at Jesus's collection of teachings found in Matthew's chapter 5 through 7. So we have a few chapters where we're looking at all red letters, all the teachings of Jesus. So I've been personally reading a lot of Sermon on the Mount. Also, it's not the only thing I've been reading over the past few weeks. Uh, Every night, with my oldest daughter, Anaya. She's seven. I spent about 30 to 60 minutes reading with her. So sometimes she's reading to me. Sometimes I'm reading to her. And, and a few weeks ago, we started The Hobbit. Any Tolkien fans? Yeah, so we just started The Hobbit, and it's been pretty cool to uh, enjoy that experience with her. And there's this passage in the beginning of The Hobbit that reminded me of this section that we're currently in, in the Sermon on the Mount. It kind of, this passage explores kind of the internal uh, feelings of Bilbo Baggins. So let me set the stage a little bit before I read that for us. So Bilbo Baggins, his home has just kind of been invaded, bombarded by a a troop of dwarves who are led by Thorin Oakenshield I know we have a nerdy church, so y'all are still with me, right? So we have Thor and Oakenshield, the dwarves, and Gandalf, and they just kind of burst into Bilbo's quiet home in Baggins End, and he's, Bag End, thank you, Cy, thank you, I always appreciate the nerds correcting me. I got corrected on, on the lightsaber color last time I brought up a nerdy <laughs> analogy here at Church of the Well, so... So they've just bombarded Bilbo, and and Bilbo's, like many hobbits, he has an affinity for comfort, kind of the quiet uh, life that he's found in the Shire. And all of a sudden, the doors to his home are burst open, he's invited into an adventure. And the dwarves are singing this song about the adventures of past and the, the dangerous adventures that lie ahead and something, the, the, this passage speaks of something that was awakened within Bilbo, something Tukish. Now, Tukish is like Bilbo's ancestry that he's kind of out of touch with. It's the adventurous part of his nature that he's long forgotten. So let's read what this has to say about what was going on inside Bilbo as he's invited into this adventure. It says, as they sang, the hobbit, speaking of Bilbo, felt the love of the beautiful things made by hands and by cunning and by magic moving through him, a fierce and jealous love, the desire of the hearts of the dwarves. Then something Tukish, something Tukish woke up inside him and he wished to go and see the great mountains and hear the pine trees and the waterfalls and explore the caves and wear a sword instead of a walking stick. 
He looked out the window. The stars were out in the dark sky above the trees. He thought of the jewels of the dwarves shining in the dark, in the dark caverns. Suddenly, in the wood beyond the water, a flame leapt up, probably somebody lighting a wood fire. And he thought of plundering dragons settling on his quiet hill and kindling it all to flames. He shuddered, and very quickly he was plain Mr. Baggins of Bag End, Underhill again. And so, so if you're like me, the spectrum of emotions we experience when we come to the Sermon on the Mount are something like that of Bilbo's that I, I read here to Anaya in The Hobbit. We, we, we hear of Jesus and his invitation to live in the kingdom of God, to be truly human. And that, that, that the kingdom of God is, is, is now open and available to all of us. And we're called to reflect the God whose image we're created in, right? We're invited into the adventure. We're awakened by this beautiful, compelling gospel announcement that the kingdom of God is in fact here and at hand and available. But then we come to sections like we did last week. It's like Bilbo looking out and he sees the fire. It's probably just someone lighting a campfire, but then he begins to imagine dragons, right? Plundering and he shudders and he becomes plain old Bilbo again. And we come to teachings like the section we find ourselves in, which Adam kind of kickstarted last week where we're looking at issues of what it means to live in this kingdom, what it means to live in the kingdom of God without uh, hatred for our brother, without lust or envy, or, with, or without a, an, un, an improper understanding of what it means to have power or authority over others, a misuse of power. And so we shudder again and we become a plain old Bilbo Baggins, but I believe this about this section and about the Sermon on the Mount as a whole is that through the encouragement of community, through the scripture that God has given us and, and through, through practices, the teaching of scripture and the power of the Holy Spirit, this life that Jesus invites us into is actually possible. Because sometimes we can read this and think and shudder and we fall to the floor and we curl up into a ball and we think that this life that Jesus invites us into is just some sort of uh, utopian ideal that's not possible for us, or it's too difficult, it's too impossible to live by, this te- by the teachings of Jesus. And so I want to invite Kobe up, and he's going to continue our section here in Matthew chapter 5. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told... You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, 
let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it is said, you shall, not love, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's the words of Jesus. Difficult. Uh, We're not going to be delving too deeply into that first section where Jesus is teaching on making oaths. I'll simply say this. Jesus is advocating for a life that's framed by honesty, so that there, there are all sorts of extra biblical teaching during the time of Jesus that talked about uh, when, to whom, and to what degree honesty was required. And Jesus takes the matter like he did the previous matters that Adam looked at last week covered, and he takes them to the heart level. So simply put, the lives of followers of Jesus, they should be marked by honesty. So we won't go any deeper than that, um, because we're going to be focusing on what I believe is one of the most difficult commandments of Jesus. Uh, Actually, I I believe it is the most difficult commandment of Jesus. This is uh, verse 43. You could have that up on the screen. Verse 43, you have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So again, context. The whole Sermon on the Mount is about the kingdom of God and, it, and that the kingdom of God is all about restored and renewed relationships. The kingdom of God is an invitation for us to be restored and renewed in our relationship to God, with each other, and with all of creation. And so Jesus is preaching, he's preaching about who's blessed, who has found favor with God, and he announces this, the Beatitudes and all sorts of people are announced and declared to be right in the middle of God's blessing and favor, who no one would suspect would be having pronouncement of blessing and favor of God announced onto them. And who's, so it's about who's invited in, And then we find that the Sermon on the Mount is how the kingdom of God community is supposed to organize itself around these ideas that Jesus is talking about. In other words, when we come to the Sermon on the Mount, when we come to a commandment like this, Jesus is presenting a kingdom of God truth or a kingdom of God perspective, or a kingdom of God reality that we are then to be shaped by, formed by, that then is supposed to impact the way that we live and move and breathe and and interact as individuals and also as a community, a kingdom of God community, which is the church. And so how our lives are shaped by this reality, spirit, soul, body, spiritually, emotionally, physically, what we do with our hands, with our work, 
in the way that we live. So Jesus is, is preaching this. So each week, we've been focusing on one of these elements. This week, we're focusing on, on, on this particular commandment. And there's a kingdom of God perspective shift there's a, that, that Jesus is moving his audience toward. He's moving his audience toward, and usually associated with a, a kingdom of God perspective shift that Jesus is kind of moving his audience toward in each of these teachings, there's usually a kingdom of God action associated with that perspective shift. Now, this is perhaps the biggest perspective shift Jesus is asking his audience to make, probably the hardest to live as well. So to dig a little bit deeper, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So this is the sixth time. The, the thing about the oaths, that was the fifth and Adam co- covered the previous four. This is the sixth time Jesus is doing uh, what he is doing here, which is taking an Old Testament command something from Torah, and he's affirming something about what, what that scripture is talking about. So, uh, love your neighbor is that thing that Jesus is affirming. So, he's doing something in each of these six times, and then he's also setting that kind of side by side with a teaching of his own, which that's the kingdom of God perspective shift that he's inviting us into. So as Adam mentioned last week, when Jesus is doing this, he's not negating or undermining Torah or law or the Old Testament. He's actually fulfilling the law by moving to the deeper issue at hand in the command. So what is that scripture that Jesus is quoting and referencing here in verses 43 and 44? It comes from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. We have that for you on the screen. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. What's missing? Let's go to the next slide and keep that up there. What's missing? Hate your enemy. So this is, this is important if we're going to understand this verse because Jesus is not saying you have read in Torah, he's saying, you have heard it said. So Jesus is actually entering into a theological debate of, of the day. And the, the, the debate was, how do we answer the question, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Hate, hate your enemy is missing. We don't read that anywhere in Leviticus 19. In fact, we don't read that anywhere in the Bible. There are stories of people who hate their enemy. Usually those people aren't held up as moral examples for us. They're like bad people, right? So when Jesus says, you've heard it said, he's entering into this conversation because who is my neighbor is an important question if you don't have a right of vengeance towards them, and you have to love them. This question becomes incredibly important for God's people as they interpret God's word. So this is the question Jesus is engaging as we speak, as he speaks about 
what does the kingdom of God look like? How does the kingdom of God invite us into this question? He engages it. Now, all of the teachers or rabbis of Jesus's day would have looked at the immediate context in Leviticus chapter 19. So all the teachers of his day would have looked at the context. That's a good Bible study thing to do if you're ever looking at a verse in the Bible and you want to understand its meaning is to look at the context to be reminded that uh, the Bible isn't a collection of individual verses, but of entire streams of thought, genres, chapters, passages, books, etc. So uh, can we go to the next slide? So this is the context for Leviticus 19 verse 18. And some rabbis would have looked to these verses in asking that question, who is my neighbor? You shall not do, you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, no defer to the, to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. Who is your neighbor? You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people. Kind of think, highlight uh, among your people if you want to underline that. And you are not to act against the life of your neighbor I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen. That's a kind of a hint for the context here in Leviticus 19. Your fellow countrymen or your fellow Israelite in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. So all the teachers, uh, rabbis of Jesus' day would have said that your neighbor at the very least counts as fellow Israelites. So we could see kind of um, among your people, your fellow Israelite, your fellow countrymen here in Leviticus chapter 19. But that certainly wouldn't have included Roman soldiers. This is where, and this is kind of where a lot of rabbis, teachers landed in their interpretation of the question, who is my neighbor? Neighbor's a fellow Israelite. As long as they're not like a really terrible sinner or a traitor, like a tax collector, for example. Um, so, so it definitely didn't include Roman soldiers. Um, and so there's no obligation to show mercy or love to the traitor or the oppressor. Now, some some rabbis, some teachers, and Jesus would have been one of them, expanded who was included in the answer to the question, who is my neighbor, because they continued to pay attention to the context. So specifically, context found a few verses later in the same chapter, Leviticus 19. We have this on the screen for you as well. Verses 33, 34. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So these rabbis would say that showing mercy and loving your neighbor doesn't apply just to your fellow countrymen or to your fellow Israelite, but to the immigrant as well. So your neighbor is now uh, all those who have moved to Israel for whatever reason for work or opportunity or perhaps for safe haven. And the people of Israel are called to radically, radical hospitality and welcoming those who aren't a part of the tribe, uh, treating them like fellow 
Israelites. But these teachers also would have drawn a line as well. These rabbis and these teachers who would have gone a little bit further. And they, they, they would have drawn a line like a Roman soldier isn't, isn't an immigrant. Like they're violent occupiers. So they don't count. Like in even Zacchaeus, like tax collectors, traitor, like doesn't really count either. So when Jesus says, we can have this verse back up, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He's revealing a kingdom truth that certainly wasn't taught by the rabbis of his day, isn't explicitly found in Leviticus 19 either, that the kingdom of God is more expansive than anyone would have thought who was hearing these words of Jesus for the very first time, more expansive than they could have imagined. And it takes a radical reshaping of our worldview and the way we live today if we're going to take Jesus's words seriously. Anyone else interested in taking Jesus's words seriously? Difficult. He wants us to see that the doors of the kingdom of God are wide open and that God has graciously invited the world to be a part of it. God wants people restored in their relationship with himself, with each other, with creation. And that's more expansive of an invitation than anyone would have imagined. So where does Jesus get this idea if it's not from Leviticus 19? We put the, pat, the full uh, 43 through 48 back on the screen. Let's continue on, verse 45. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Jesus got a little bit of sass, right? It's like, it's easy to love those who are in your circle we're a part of your crew, right? For if you lo- love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you're to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Some of us tap out right there. We're like, perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's the Greek word teleos. It just means mature. Most often in the New Testament, it's described, describing a faith that's moving towards looking more and more like Jesus, who God is. So be perfect like your father is perfect. Jesus is the teleos, God, man, as, and he is whom we are called to be like, like Christ. So let's not tap out there. So where does Jesus get this idea of this expansiveness of the kingdom of God? He cites weather patterns. Have you ever noticed this about Jesus? He always responds in very unique ways to people. At one point, he's asked, Jesus, what's the king, what is the kingdom of God? And he says, the kingdom of God is like the wind. He said, it, it, no one knows where it comes from and no one knows where it's going. They don't teach you to talk about your faith like that in any apologetics course, right? Imagine like if, if your friend comes up, they're like, tell me about the gospel of Jesus and like the kingdom of heaven. And you're like, It's like the wind, like no one knows where it comes from and no one knows where it's going. They'd be like, what? Like, but (laughs) 
This, this is what Dallas Willard says of Jesus, that Jesus has a God-saturated view of the world. In other words, what this means is that Jesus sees God and his graces and his gifts wherever he is, in small things and in big things. And he can't help but make the observation that God gives gift, gives grace, blessing to those who are deserving and also to those who are undeserving. So this is an observation Jesus makes from this, as Willard puts it, this God-saturated view of the world. And so also, Jesus was shaped and framed by the scriptures. And so this is not a non-scriptural idea, even though we don't see it in Leviticus 19. In fact, Jesus would have used the Psalms to pray often. Words like this, found in Psalm 145, the Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. So these are glimpses, clues into how Jesus teaches what he does here. So Jesus is revealing something great, expansive, generous, welcoming, boundary-breaking. He's revealing how generous, groundbreaking God's love really is. So when Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, he is removing the boundary line of whom God wants to reveal his love, generosity to. It's, who God, it's just who God is, according to Jesus. And he's inviting all into the kingdom of God. Now, in the kingdom of God, Jesus is king. We can, do, we can do that. We can say that in church, right? We call him Jesus Christ. Christ just means king. But in the politics of God, the kingdom, and the rule and reign of God, it's governed by, by a primary principle that Jesus hints at in these verses. And it's the principle of love or agape in the Greek. And Jesus is the perfect embodiment, the in flesh of God's character. But if we're, fo- if we're called to follow Jesus, which is what the Sermon on the Mount is about, we're called to love in the same manner in which God loves. So apparently the same manner in which God loves includes enemy, includes the other as well. Jesus wants us to see that God's love, agape, has no boundaries in the kingdom of God. No boundaries in the kingdom of God. It's who God is, and if we're to reflect the character of God, If we're to reflect the character of God as revealed in the person of Jesus, apparently we're most like God as revealed in Jesus when we're able to agape our enemies. We're most formed by God when we also pick up our cross and are able to display agape for those who persecute us. So we're to be formed by this. So there's a perspective shift. And it's then that we see God and Jesus most clearly. Something we're about here at Church at the Well, seeing Jesus more clearly. 
But when we're formed by this kingdom truth, we're called to live, to live according to that truth. Because when we live in the kingdom of God, we live in such a way that relationships are restored to God, each other, and creation. So according to Jesus, that way that we're supposed to live has a name. It's this new reality. It's actually agape. And I keep throwing out that word because I actually think that love, our English word, love, it's not the most helpful word. It's not a translation issue. It's actually just kind of an issue with the English language because love kind of refers to this like warm, fuzzy feeling that we have that we kind of use as an affectionate term. And so we use it in all sorts of ways, right? Like I love Cabot cloth-bound cheddar, right? (laughs) I love Ben and Jerry's, right? I love 100% Vermont maple syrup. Forget Canada, forget New Hampshire, right? Vermont maple syrup. But I also love my wife and my daughters. It just doesn't carry a lot of weight to it. It doesn't mean much. Um, But Jesus shows us that not only is God's love or agape boundaryless, but that it's redemptive and it's radically active. It's radically active. So Jesus gives us some examples of actionable agape for one's enemy. So we're moving backwards. We got the perspective shift that God's love doesn't have boundaries in the kingdom of God. That's the, that's the perspective shift. It's easy to say that. It's a little bit harder when we think about how is that actionable in our lives. Verse 38, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to see you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also or your hoodie. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Now, let's just have an imagination exercise, uh, putting ourselves in the Galilee region in the first century. We can keep this projected while we imagine together. You're a fisherman who's been hearing, listening to the teachings of Jesus. You've been exploring what it would mean to be a student, a disciple, an apprentice, a follower of Jesus. You're a fisherman, and you've just had a a day of fishing in the Sea of Galilee, and you're taking the road back home, and you have to pass the tax collector's booth, but you don't have any money with you. There's a tax collector there. We'll call him Zacchaeus, because that's the name of the tax collector in the gospel account. So Zacchaeus, he approaches you to collect your taxes. You don't have any money. So you have to give a portion of your catch for the day. But you're reluctant to do that because you know that your family needs it and probably your neighbors need some of that fish as well. And so you tell Zacchaeus, I just don't have enough to pay the taxes. And so Zacchaeus, because he's little, right? He like jumps He jumps up on something to get a little bit higher and he just completely smacks you in the face, shames you, humiliates you. You've been listening to Jesus' preaching in the synagogues and on the mountainside. What do you do as a follower of Jesus? 
Another scenario, imagine this. It's a Sabbath, and you do something that was very common on the Sabbath. You head down to the lake or the Sea of Galilee, and you're relaxing, resting, taking some R&R with your family. There's all sorts of other families kind of scattered around. And all of a sudden, a troop of Roman soldiers shows up. They've been on patrol, something that would have been very common during first century in the Galilee, Galilee, Galilee region. The swords come out. The soldier drops his bag on the ground. You, Israelite, pick up my bag and carry it over that hill, or you're dead. Or you're dead. You're a follower of Jesus. What do you do? What do you do? Now, a common misunderstanding about Jesus' teachings about what to do in situations like this, because Jesus has a word of what you're supposed to do in situations like this, is that the follower of Jesus is just supposed to sit back, take the abuse, don't do anything, do what you're told, submit, let people walk all over you. But what the disciple of Jesus is called to do is neither retaliation and revenge or passive, or passive. It's something entirely different. It's something entirely different. Actually, I, I think that the word Jesus uses for it is agape, love. It's entirely different. So the follower of Jesus is called to somehow find the compassion within themselves because through the grace of God, through the spirit of God, they're able to find it within themselves. Let's say, hey, Zacchaeus, you must be having a really bad day. Do you need to get any more out? Here's my other cheek. What do you call that? It's agape, right? Like, that's not passive. There's nothing passive about living, making a radical choice to agape like that. Or, or you, Israelite, what is, what, is your, what is your response? Man, you look so tired. How about I carry that bag the rest of the way, all the way to your doorstep? Could I do that for you? Somehow, that bravery <laughs> can be awakened through the agape and love of God. What is that? It's not passive. It's not doing nothing. It's intentional and active. And I think Jesus calls it agape. This isn't in my notes, but I read it this morning. It's Paul's way of making a theology of what Jesus says here about loving your enemy. Jesus says this, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, But now in Christ Jesus, you who are form formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one. This is what God's about, restoring relationships with not just people and himself, but people and each other. He made both groups into one, us and them, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that he himself might take the two into one new person, thus establishing peace. 
and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. Both in one body to God through the cross. This is the goal of love of enemy, is that God would restore relationships. And notice that it's actually a group that has been restored to each other that is then restored to God, according to Paul, through the cross, by having put to death the enmity. And he came and he preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. There's nothing easy about choosing to live agape-formed lives. It's not easy, but God is inviting all sorts of people into the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is only established through sacrificial, selfless giving of ourself like Jesus did. Jesus does this fully in the cross. Remember, as he's being crucified, he's praying for those who are persecuting him. And we're called to be a part of God's kingdom by living Christ-like lives, which includes living with agape for our enemies. I could share with you some stories about how I've done this really, really well. I'm not going to. Uh, but I would like to share a couple stories about a couple friends of mine, how this has looked in their lives, and then someone also who we're all familiar with. Uh, I, I had a friend in Bible college, one of my best friends, and his dad was a pastor in Haiti. He was kidnapped. Not uncommon. I won't, I won't, I'll keep the story brief. It was not an uncommon thing to happen, but he was kidnapped. And so me and my friend, we started fasting and praying, and there's a whole group of people fasting and praying for him. He was released without being injured or killed or anything like that, though he was threatened with injury and uh, violence and, and, and all of that. But he, through that whole scenario, like the presence of God he would recount was with him in a very uh, unique way in being revealed to him that he was able to express love even for his captors in such a Christ-like way. And he has this watch uh, that one of the captors gave to him. So he was, you know, wherever he was in a room locked somewhere, praying for his captors. And one of his captors gave him this watch. He's repented. He's like, I'm so sorry. Like, I, and shared his, his story and how he got to where he was and said, please, pastor, like, remember me, pray for me. That is an example, a, quite a drastic example of a us versus them, becoming a us for them and God using that in a redemptive way. Also, my friend Robin Harder, um, who some of you might be familiar with because she runs a nonprofit that we support here at Church of the Wall called Signs of Love in Honduras. And her husband, Jeff, who I actually preached one of my first sermons in his church over 13 years ago in Washington State. Um, her husband, Jeff, uh, when they got married, moved down to Honduras to be a part of their, their uh, ministry that was ministering to deaf and mute, uh, the deaf and mute community in rural villages all around Honduras. And he was, he was murdered um, in the midst of kind of like a, a ministry situation where they were trying to rescue someone out of a pretty terrible situation. So uh, my friend Jeff was murdered, and Robin 
uh, rather than choosing to respond with bitterness or anger or hatred, has continued the good work uh, in Honduras in serving that community where her own family had been persecuted in a very violent and threatening way. And there have been all sorts of stories of God's redemption and healing through that. Now, I have a picture for us as well. This is someone who, whose whole life was framed by these wor- words of Jesus, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Now, we don't always hear about Martin Luther King Jr.'s faith because we've kind of elevated in the public world a lot of his uh, teachings and speeches that were meant for a much broader audience than uh, the church or those of faith, but his whole life, if you kind of dig a little bit deeper into uh, his, his writings, his life's work, his sermons, uh, was framed by the teachings and person of Jesus, particularly this teaching of Jesus's of, you've heard it said, but I say, love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you. He was incredibly misunderstood. People didn't understand why he didn't respond with more aggression because he had kind of people who would rally around him. This is an image of MLK looking very sharp, very nice suit, and it's a little bit dark in, or, or bright in here, so you're having a hard time seeing it, but that's a cross that has been burned uh, in his front yard. He's out there with his son. And so before he went out, he kind of recounts this story of getting as sharp dressed as he could, his best suit, and going out. And there's a story that's told of him praying in front of the media that day for those who did that. And there, there are all sorts of other stories of how MLK lived and embodied this truth, this kingdom perspective that Jesus taught when his, his house was burned and raised. There's actually a group, a mob, that formed at one of his rallies, and he, he preached Jesus' words here from Matthew chapter 5. Um, uh, it's difficult to do, to be like Jesus and to be like God and agape like God But we have examples like MLK, like Robin. We have examples like my friend's dad, Pritchard, in Capetian, Haiti. It's incredibly difficult, but there is no powerful force for change than we choose to live and act according to this Christ-like agape. Let's read how MLK said it. He actually preached like a sermon like at least once a year on this text. I have that quote for you on the screen. The ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral, begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. Through violence, you may murder the liar, but you cannot murder the lie, nor establish the truth. Through violence, you may murder the hater, but you do not murder hate. In fact, violence merely increases hate. So it goes. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Question, homework assignment. 
is there someone, a person that you can't stand? Remember, they probably can't stand you either. That you can do something for this week. Something unsuspecting, something counterintuitive, countercultural. Is there something you can do to show agape to that person you can't stand? It's examples. Uh, maybe a, a relative, like a cousin or something, a boss, an acquaintance, a coworker, someone you go to school with, a roommate, maybe someone that just really bothers you. Is there something surprising you can do for them as an act of agape in the next week? See if something happens inside of you. Maybe something will happen inside of them. Don't tell them, my pastor gave me this homework assignment <laughs> to love my enemy. <laughs> and this is the way that I'm showing that to you. Don't tell them. Do it quietly. Just do it in a surprising way. Do it quietly in a surprising way. Remember, they probably can't send you as well. See if God shows you something about his love who you are, and maybe he'll do something in that person as well. Not an easy teaching, but a central key perspective shift that Jesus invites us into when we think about what is the kingdom of God and what does it look like to follow him. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your grace. I thank you that we once were separated from you, but that through Jesus you have taken us in and embraced us with your love goodness, grace, mercy, gift. I pray that as we go about our week, our days, our lives, that we would have a God-saturated view of the world and see you in all sorts of small and big ways as we live and we move and we breathe in this world. Help us to see you and your presence and your grace that you distribute freely to all. Help us to be ambassadors of that goodness, that grace, that agape, God, I pray that your agape, your boundaryless agape would fill our hearts as a church community and we would be known as those who not only love those who are like us, but love those who are not like us. God, I pray that, that any dividing barrier of us versus them, that you would transform our hearts to be the type of people that say, no, we're not going to do the same old thing. We're not going to keep the cycle going. We're not going to do us versus them. We're going to do us for them, God. And so I just pray that you would work that agape deep into our hearts. We thank you for your cross, your goodness, your peace, your love that you have freely given to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Church at the Well is a community reintroducing Jesus in Vermont through worship, service, creativity, and community. 